This book is called The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. And I cannot remember at all why I have this book. I think maybe I got it in high school or maybe my mom gave it to me a long time ago. I just can't remember. And I had lost it, actually. And then today I saw it at the Los Altos Library in their, they have a sales section in the front. So you can buy books for like a dollar, like two dollars. It's awesome. So I was trying to actually go and restock my collection because a lot of my favorite books and my main books I left in Maine when we moved there and I shipped all my stuff over and then I came back but none of my stuff really came back well most of it didn't so I found this and now I'm wondering what in the world like I can't even remember what this book is about um so let's see if it's any good oh here is here's the blurb on the back or it's not on the back it's like on the front in inside cover I'm probably pronouncing her last name wrong. I'm sure it's Allende, like Spanish. I don't know. It's A-L-L-E-N-D-E. And this book was published. When were you published book? Phantom Books. She also wrote Evaluna of Love and Shadows, the story of Evaluna. Translated from Spanish by Magda Bogan. Okay. That is one thing that I remember about this book is the only thing that I remember about this book from long ago is that it was very like strange to read. It felt very disjointed and um just hazy so maybe that's because it was it's a translated from Spanish and 1985 okay 1985 originally originally published in Spain as La Casa de los Espíritus Yeah. Not one word has been omitted. This edition contains the complete text of the original hardcover edition. Not one word has been omitted. Interesting. It says here on the front inside cover, although it is a paperback. It's very, you know, small, normal, like standard small book. And it's about... 450 pages it says here in an astonishing debut by a gifted storyteller is the magnificent saga of proud and passionate men and women and the turbulent times through which they suffer and triumph they are the true bus and theirs is a world you will not want to leave and one you will not forget esteban the patriarch, a volatile and proud man whose lust for land is legendary and who is haunted by his tyrannical passion 
for the wife he can never completely possess. Clara, the matriarch, elusive and mysterious, who foretells family tragedy and shapes the fortunes <coughs> of the house of the Trubas. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Blanca, their daughter, soft-spoken yet rebellious, whose shocking love for their son of her father's foreman fuels Esteban's everlasting contempt, even as it produces the grandchild he adores. Alba, the fruit of Blanca's forbidden love, a luminous beauty, a fiery and willful woman. The families break with the past and link to the future. On the back, there's some quotes, blah, blah, blah. Unforgettable. It tells the story of the Truba family with its deep loves and hates following them from the turn of the century. Uh, the Truba family becomes our own. Their country, their continent, their tragedies are ours. Their triumphs will also be ours. Forgive me in advance if my reading is not perfect. I should probably just go watch Game of Thrones right now. But I want to try to get one more chapter in. So, to my mother, my grandmother, and all other extraordinary women of this story. How much does a man live, after all? Does he live a thousand days, or one only? For a week, or for several centuries? How long does a man spend dying? What does it mean to say forever? Pablo Neruda. The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. Chapter 1. Rosa the Beautiful. Barabbas came to us by sea. The child Clara wrote in her delicate cal calligraphy. She was already in the habit of writing down important matters. And afterward, when she was mute, she also recorded trivialities, never suspecting that fifty years later I would use her notebooks to reclaim the past and overcome terrors of my own. Barbaros arrived on a holy Thursday. He was in a despicable cage, caked with his own excrement and urine, and he had lost he had the lost look of a hapless, utterly defenseless prisoner. But the regal carriage of his head and the size of his frame bespoke the legendary giant he would become. It was a bland autumnal day that gave no hint of the events that the child would record, which took place during the noon mass in the parish of San Sebastian, with her whole family in attendance. As a sign of mourning, the statues of the saints were shrouded in purple robes that the pious ladies of the congregation unpacked and dusted off once a year from a cupboard in the sacristy. Beneath these funeral sheets, the celestial retinue resembled nothing so much as a room full of furniture awaiting movers, an impression that the candles, the incense, and the soft moans of the organ were powerless to counteract. Terrifying dark bundles loomed where the life-size saints had stood each with its influenza pale expression, its elaborate wig woven from the hair of someone long dead, its rubies, pearls, and emeralds of painted glass, and the rich gown of a Florentine aristocrat. The only one whose appearance was enhanced by mourning 
was the church's patron saint, Sebastian, for during Holy Week the faithful were spared the sight of that body, twisted in the most indecent posture, pierced by arrows, and dripping with blood and tears like a stuffed... Oh, like a... <laughs> like a suffering homosexual oh, whose wounds kept miraculous, miraculously fresh by Father Restrepo's brush made Clara tremble with disgust. It was a long week of penitence and fasting, during which there were no card games and no music that might lead to lust or abandon, and within the limits of possibility, the strictest sadness and chastity were observed, even though it was precisely at this time that the forked trail of the devil pricked most insistently at Catholic flesh. The fast consisted of soft puff pastries, delicious vegetarian dishes, spongy tortillas, and enormous cheeses from the countryside, with which each family commemorated the passion of the Lord, taking every precaution not to touch the least morsel of meat or fish on pain of excommunication, as Father Restrepo had repeatedly made clear. No one had ever dared to disobey him. The priest was blessed with a long, incriminating finger, which he used to point out sinners in public, and a tongue well-schooled in arousing emotions. "'There's the thief who steals from the collection box,' he shouted from the pulpit as he pointed to a gentleman who was busying himself with the lint on his lapel so as not to show his face. "'And there's the shameless hussy who prostitutes herself down by the docks,' he accused Donya Esther Truba, disabled by arthritis, and a devotee of the Virgin del Carmen, who opened her eyes wide, not knowing the meaning of the word or where the docks were. Repent, sinners, foul carrion, unworthy of our Lord's great sacrifice. Fast, do penance. Carried away by vocalization, oh, carried away by vocational zeal, the priest had all he could do to avoid openly disobeying the instructions of his ecclesiastic superiors, who, shaken by the winds of modernism, were opposed to hair shirts and flagellation. He himself was a firm believer in the value of a good thrashing to vanquish the weaknesses of the soul, and was famous for his unrestrained oratory. The faithful followed him from parish to parish, sweating as he described the torments of the damned in hell, the bodies ripped apart by various ingenious torture apparatuses, the eternal flames, the hooks that pierced the male member, the disgusting reptiles that crept up female orifices, and the myriad other sufferings that he wove into his sermons to strike fear of God into the hearts of his parishioners. Even Satan was described in his most intimate perversions in the Galician accents of this priest whose mission in this world was to rouse the conscience of his indolent creole flock. <clears throat> Severo de Val was an atheist and a mason, 
but he had political ambitions and could not allow himself the luxury of missing the most heavily attended mass on Sundays and feast days when everyone would have a chance to see him. His wife, Nivea, preferred to deal with God without benefit of intermediaries. She had a deep distrust of cassocks and was borne by descriptions of heaven, purgatory, and hell, but she shared her husband's parliamentary ambitions, hoping that if he won a seat in Congress, she would finally secure the vote for women, for which she had fought for the past ten years, permitting none of her numerous pregnancies to get in her way. On this holy Thursday, Father Estrepo had led his audience to the limits of their endurance with his apocalyptic visions, and Nivea was beginning to feel dizzy. She wondered if she was pregnant again. Despite cleansings with vinegar and spongings with gall, she had given birth to fifteen children, of whom eleven were still alive, but she had good reason to suppose that she was settling into maturity, because her daughter Clara, the youngest of her children, was now ten. It seemed that the force of her it seemed that the force of her astonishing fertility had begun to ebb. She was able to attribute her present discomfort to Father Restrepo when he pointed at her to illustrate a point about the Pharisees, who had tried to legalize bastards in civil marriage, thereby dismembering the family, the fatherland, private property, and the church, and putting women on an equal footing with men. This in open defiance of the law of God, which was most explicit on the issue. Along with their children, Nivea and Severo took up the entire third row of benches. Clara was seated beside her mother, who squeezed her hand impatiently whenever the priest lingered too long on the sins of the flesh, for she knew that this would only lead the child to visualize with even greater accuracy aberrations that transcended reality. Clara was extremely precocious and had inherited the runaway imagination of all the women in her family on her mother's side. This was evident from the questions she asked to which no one knew the answers. The temperature inside the church had risen and the penetrating odor of the candles, the incense, and the tightly packed crowd all, contribute, all contributed to Nevea's fatigue. She wished the ceremony would end at once so she could return to her cool house and sit uh, among the ferns and taste the pitcher of barley water flavored with almonds that Nana always made on holidays. She looked around at her children. The younger ones were tired and rigid in their Sunday best, and the older ones were beginning to squirm. Her gaze rested on Rosa, the oldest of her living daughters, and, as always, she was surprised. The girl's strange beauty had a disturbing quality that even she could not help noticing, for this child of hers seemed to have been made of a different material from the rest of the human race. Even before she was born, Nevea had known she was not of this world, because she had already because she had already seen her in dreams. This was why she had not been surprised when the midwife screamed as the child emerged. At birth, Rosa was white and smooth, without a wrinkle, like a porcelain doll with green hair and yellow eyes, the most beautiful creature to be born on earth since the days of original sin, as the midwife put it, making the sign of the cross. From her very first bath, Nana had washed her hair with chamomile, 
chamomile, which softened its color, giving it the hue of old bronze. <clears throat> oh, like... Like the Statue of Liberty, maybe? No. I don't know. Uh, like maybe a white, almost? Uh, and put her out in the sun with nothing on to strengthen her skin, which was translucent, translucent in the most delicate parts of her chest and armpits, where the veins and secret texture of the muscles could be seen. Nana's gypsy tricks did not suffice, however, and rumors quickly spread that Nivea had born an angel. Nivea hoped that the successive and unpleasant stages of growth would bring her daughter a few imperfections, but nothing of the sort occurred. On the contrary, at 18, Rosa was still slender and remained unblemished. Her maritime grace had, if anything, increased. The tone of her skin, with its soft bluish lights, and of her hair, as well as her slow movements and silent character, all made one think of some inhabitant of the sea. There was something of the fish to her. If she had a scaly tail, she would have been a mermaid. But her two legs placed her squarely on the tenuous line between a human being and a creature of myth. Despite everything, the young woman had led a nearly normal life. She had a fiancé and would one day marry, on which occasion the responsibility of her beauty would become her husband's. Rosa bowed her head, and a ray of sunlight pierced the gothic stained-glass windows of the church, outlining her face in a halo of light. A few people turned to look at her and whispered among themselves, as often happened as she passed, but Rosa seemed oblivious. She was immune to vanity, <clears throat> and that day she was more absent than usual, dreaming of new beasts to embroider on her tablecloth, creatures that were half bird, half mammal, covered with iridescent feathers and endowed with horns and hooves, and so fat with such stubby wings that they defied the laws of biology and aerodynamics. She rarely thought about her fiancé, Esteban Trube, not because she did not love him, but because of her forgetful nature and because two years' absence is a long time. He was working in the mines in the north. He wrote to her regularly, and Rosa sometimes replied, sending him lines of poetry and drawings of flowers she had copied out on sheets of parchment paper. Through this correspondence, which Nevea violated with impunity at regular intervals, she learned about the hazards of a miner's life, always dreading avalanches, pursuing elusive veins, asking for credit against good luck that was still to come, and trusting that some day he would strike a marvelous seam of gold that would allow him to become a rich man overnight and return to lead Rosa by the arm to the altar, thus becoming the happiest man in the universe, as he always wrote at the end of his letters. Rosa, however, was in no rush to marry, and had all but forgotten the only kiss they had exchanged when they said goodbye. Nor could she recall the color of her tenacious suitor's eyes. Because of the romantic novels that were her only reading matter, she liked to picture him in thick-soled boots, his skin tanned from the desert wind, clawing the earth in search of pirate's treasure, Spanish doubloons, and Incan jewels. It was useless for Nevea to attempt to convince her that the wealth of mines lay in rocks, because to Rosa 
It was inconceivable that Esteban Truba would spend years piling up boulders in the hope that by subjecting them to God, to God only knew what, wicked incinerating processes, they would eventually spit out a gram of gold. Meanwhile, she awaited him without boredom, unperturbed by the enormous tasks she had taken upon herself to embroider the largest tablecloth in the world. She had begun with dogs, cats, and butterflies, but soon her imagination had taken over, and her needle had given birth to a whole paradise filled with impossible creatures that took shape beneath her father's worried eyes. Severo felt that it was time for his daughter to shake off her lethargy, stand firmly in reality, and learn the domestic skills that would prepare her for marriage. But Nevea thought differently. She preferred not to torment her daughter with earthly demands, for she had a premonition that her daughter was a heavenly being, and that she was not destined to last very long in the vulgar, in the vulgar traffic of this world. For this reason, she left her alone with her embroidery threads and said nothing about Rosa's nightmarish zoology. A bone in Nevea's corset snapped, and the point jabbed her in the ribs. She felt she was choking in her blue velvet dress with its high lace collar, its narrow sleeves, and a waist so tight that when she removed her belt, her stomach jumped and twisted for half an hour while her organs fell back in place. She had often discussed this with her suffragette friends, and they had all agreed that until women shortened their dresses and their hair and stopped wearing corsets, it made no difference if they studied medicine or had the right to vote, because they would not have the strength to do it. But she herself was not brave enough to be among the first to give up the fashion. She noticed that the voice from Galicia had ceased hammering at her brain. They were one of those long... They were in one of those long breaks in the sermon that the priest, a connoisseur of unbelievable, unbearable silences, used with frequency and to great effect. His burning eyes glanced over the parishioners one by one. Nevea dropped Clara's hands, hand and pulled a handkerchief from her sleeve to blot the drop of sweat that was rolling down her neck. The silence grew thick and time seemed to stop within the church, but no one dared to cough or shift position so as not to attract Father Restrepo's attention. His final sentences were still ringing between the columns. Just at that moment, as Nevea would recall years later, in the midst of all that anxiety and silence, the voice of little Clara was heard in all its purity. Psst! Father Restrepo! If that story about hell is a lie, we're all fucked, aren't we? (laughs) The Jesuit's index finger, which was already raised to illustrate additional tortures, remained suspended like a lightning rod above his head. People stopped breathing, and those whose heads had been nodding suddenly woke up. Signor and Signor Deval were the first to react. They were swept by panic as they saw their children fidget nervously. Severo understood that he must act before a collective laughter broke out around them or some divine cataclysm occurred. He grabbed his wife by the arm and Clara by the neck and walked out dragging them behind him with enormous strides. 
followed by his older children, who stampeded toward the door. They managed to escape before the priest could summon a ray of lightning to turn them all into pillars of salt. But from the threshold they could hear his dreadful voice of offended archangel. archangel. Possessed. She's possessed by the devil. These words of Father Restrepo were etched in the family memory with all the gravity of a diagnosis, and in the years to come they had more than one occasion to recall them. The only one who never brought, uh, the only one who never thought of them again was Clara herself, who simply wrote them in her diary and forgot them. Her parents, however, could not forget, even though they both agreed that domestic possession was a sin too great for such a tiny child. Oh, sorry. even though they both agreed that demonic possession was a sin too great for such a tiny child. They were afraid of other people's curses and Father Estrepo's fanaticism. Until that day, they never. They had never given a name to the eccentricities of their youngest daughter, nor had it ever crossed their minds to ascribe them to satanic influence. Clara's strangeness was simply an attribute of their youngest daughter, like Louise's limp or Rose's beauty. The child's mental powers bothered no one and produced no great disorder. They almost always surfaced in matters of minor importance and within the strict confines of their home. It was true there had been times, just as they were about to sit down to dinner and everyone was in the large dining room, seated accordingly, according to dignity and position, when the salt cellar would suddenly begin to shake and move among the plates and goblets without any visible source of energy or sign of illusionist's trick. Nevea would pull Clara's braids, and that would be enough to wake her daughter from her mad distraction and return the salt cellar to immobility. The other children had organized a system so that in case of visitors, um, the other children had organized a system so that in case of visitors, Whoever was closest would reach out and stop whatever might be moving on the table before the guests noticed and were startled. The family continued eating without comment. They had also grown accustomed to the youngest daughter's prophecies. She would announce earthquakes in advance, which was quite useful in that country of catastrophes, for it gave them a chance to lock up the good dishes and place their slippers within reach in case they had to run out in the middle of the night. At the age of six, Clara had foreseen that the horse was going to throw Luis, but he refused to listen and had had a dislocated hip ever since. In time, his left leg had shortened and he had to wear a special shoe with an enormous platform that he made for himself. After that, Nevea had worried, but Nana reassured her by telling her that many children fly like birds. Ugh, this... Okay, so I just got this book today. Every time I turn a page, like, this microscopic wall of, like, book dust comes at me. I'm kind of... Ugh, my nose. Um, how many pages do we have left? God, so many. Probably gonna put this book into the book box like when we're done with chapter one because 
I don't really remember being thrilled with it the first time that I read it either for some reason. Holy shit, this fucking chapter just goes on and on. Wow. The first chapter is 40 pages. Like, I mean, I guess that's normal, but I'm used to reading children's books. <laughs> and we're on page 8 right now. <coughs> okay. I'm going to take a break. Maybe we'll do more tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll do another installment of chapter 1 tomorrow. Oh, okay. Good night. Sorry. <laughs>